hello, hello. This is Tooth Be Toad. This is Dr. Walter Aka. This is Dr. Leroy Horton. Dr. Stephen Page. All right. So listen, everybody, it's a big treat for me. And I know it's going to be a treat for you. This is one of my closest friends in the whole wide world. We were business partners uh, for the greater part of like 12 or 13 years. We still collaborate. We still travel together, go to conventions, hang out, talk all the time. One of the neatest, coolest, uh, you know, most interesting people on the planet, kind of like the Dosekis guys, right? One of the most, he's got a story for everything. Um, this is the illustrious, the well-known, especially in the greater Northwest, uh, Dr. Stephen Page is here to entertain us and give us some really deep insight after 38 years in the game of dentistry. Um, so Steve, how you doing, my man? I'm doing fantastic and thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So I wanted to open up uh, with a kind of a lighthearted question, but it gets to the heart of who you are. And this is why I really wanted to ask this question. So when me and you interviewed years ago, I don't know if you remember, but I walked in and literally we talked for like three or four hours and barely talked about dentistry. We talked about everything but dentistry. And that was the first time I met you when we interviewed. One thing that I've come to notice about you is no matter where we go, you know black people. <laughs> and I, no, seriously, listen. Okay, uh, Steve, how old are you? You're 70, right? I'm 71. Okay, you're a 71-year-old Jewish guy yeah. who happens to be in the, the in crowd of all the brothers and sisters, no matter where we go. And I know it has something to do with your upbringing mm -hmm. and where you were raised and who you were around. So why don't you give us you know, a brief spiel on, on the young, early years of uh, Steve Page. Yeah, well, believe it or not, I, I'm, that, I'm so old that um, I actually started grade school and my school was uh, integrated by busing back in New York in the 1950s. Mm. And I remember moving out to, I think it was California in the 1980s. And I remember they were talking about busing at that time. And there was like a whole big thing about it. And I, I remember thinking, what? I was in the kindergarten when they were busting me. And it just totally blew me away. This was California in the late 80s, early uh, late 70s, early 80s. And they were arguing about it, you know? So it just was, it's my, it was my body to me. I guess growing up in New York is, I guess New York is, I guess, about as progressive as you can get, really, you know? And uh, so, and then I grew up, and then I moved to Jamaica, Queens, which is a highly integrated, highly, highly integrated neighborhood. And I had I had more people of color in my class than white people. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I mean, so like for, to me, just integration. I mean, I, I grew up, uh, I kind of grew up in projects even, you know? And like, I grew up in a area which was 20 buildings. Each building had three sections, 13 stories. And every, every apartment was cookie cutter. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, I know, and, and like, but the nice thing about it was, I could go outside summer, winter, fall, didn't matter. I can go outside anytime during the day and there'd be like 50 guys I knew hanging out, you know? Like if you grow up in the suburbs, you'd have to like find your way to a friend's house or have your parents drive you over. I would just walk outside and there'd be like 50 people I knew. So there was there was benefit to it, you know? Right. But we also, it was a lower income area. And like, but I didn't feel poor, you know, I just, I, I really didn't. I mean, cause everybody around me was a very similar situation. And uh, except when I went to visit my cousins, 
they lived in the suburbs, and then I then I noticed then I noticed the difference. <laughs> that's when you realized how poor you were, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> then I realized what they had and I didn't have, and they were all going to like you know the best colleges, you know. And I was going to community college at the time because it was free. It was actually free to go to community college in New York City, mm. but that that changed. It's still cheap, but it's not free anymore, you know. And so I did what I could to get myself you know, not to put myself in heavy debt by the time I graduated, you know. I still ended up being in debt, though. That's the way it was, you know. But it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Okay. Steve, let me ask you, um, one, where did you go to school for dentistry? And then also, what made you move west? I mean, the east. I'm, I'm from Philly area. You know, I, oh. I, I couldn't imagine moving to the west area because it's so different. Just people, the dynamics, the way people interact with each other. So what made you, one, what school did you go to for dental, for dentistry? Okay. And well, what made you, well, first of all, West? I was actually, I was actually born in Philadelphia. Mm. <laughs> so, I, I, so. I, listen, he, he's already won. He's, a, <laughs> you, well, you've won the game. Born, well, you know what, listen, you were talking about my history. I was born in Philadelphia and my father died when I was three years old of polio. And uh, actually just like six months before they released the polio vaccine. Yeah, and then so my mom couldn't afford staying there. So we moved to my grandparents' house, which was in Brooklyn, New York. And then we moved to Queens and Jamaica. And you know, I did a lot of moving around, but I always, I always thought that living, I don't know why I thought it. I just thought living out West would be better, you know? And I don't know why, but I had a dream to do that when I was really young, like 10 years old. And so pretty much I finished college and then I, and then I moved out to California and I was actually an engineer. I graduated uh, with an engineering degree and I did it for a few years and I did not like the corporate, the whole corporate structure, you know? And so I decided I had to find something that I can do that would kind of put me in my own business and I can get out of that corporate structure. And I had two friends that had graduated dental school and I remember remember saying to myself, you know, I, I could probably do that. And um, and at the same time, I was dating a girl whose father was a legal advisor, a, a lawyer for the California Dental Association. And I and I met all these people that were dentists, you know. And I remember thinking, you know, that would be a good thing for me to do. They were all in their individual businesses. They all seemed to be happy with what they were doing. So I went back to school and took a few courses that I didn't take, like biology, that wasn't something I did in engineering. And then I took the DATs, got into uh, Marquette Dental School. And at the same time, I was engaged to be married to my present wife, whose parents live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, you know, she was pregnant. So it just turned out to be great where I could, I could go to school, have babysitting with my in-laws, and, uh, you know, it turned out to be a good thing. But when I graduated, I still wanted to fulfill my dream of going back out west. So once I graduated, my father-in-law said, well, are you going to work here? I go, hey, I love you, man, but I'm not staying here. <laughs> <laughs> so I headed back out to California. And then uh, I did that for working for people for about eight years. And then I moved to Washington and then started my own my own business. That's a, that's a pretty much a good synopsis of how it all went down. That, that's awesome, man. So when you were working in California, was that as a private owner? Was that, um, you know, in a, in a corporate uh, setting? What, what did that look like? Yeah, that was a corporate setting. And I, 
I, I really, really quickly became the manager because I was hustling and uh, they quickly made me the manager of it. And in those days, what it looked like was, was there was a law in California where you could only own two dental practices at a time. And so what a lot of was going on was, uh, which eventually became the way the norm is in many places where a marketing company owns all the equipment, you know, and owns everything. But, you know, you're you're the quote unquote, you know, doctor. So your name's on the door. You're the you're the one who owns the quote unquote practice, but you don't really own the facility. And um, I worked uh, really, really, really hard, you know, for eight years. And I learned but doing that. I learned that type of business. Okay. So so when I moved to uh, Washington, um, it fit me because I didn't want to be one of those people that were, people that was the highest price around because I saw that type of practice. Although I don't begrudge anybody for for working that way because I don't have to tell you it's an easier life when you can work that way. But but so I always wanted to make dentistry as affordable for people as I could, and at the same time make a fair living for myself. And so I took that model that I learned when I was working in California, brought it to Washington, and started opening offices. And as you know, I opened a couple multiple. I had six going at one time. But over the years, I, I probably had maybe 12 that I, I bought some, sold some. And, um, you know, um, and the model, you know, which is basically I, um, I, I worked with uh, labor unions and um, I would, um, would, through another friend of mine that's not a dentist, but he's a really good marketing guy. And together we went to unions and we, and we made deals with them where we could uh, use their, their um, individual dental plans they had, which, are, which they were self-funded. And we would make really good deals in the fee schedule. And if they came to us, they would either have either no out-of-pocket cost or very little out-of-pocket, and they can get their dental work done to within the confines of the plan. And, you know, so the trade-off was I made a good living. They, the, the patients got a really good deal. And the trade-off was I had to work a lot harder than your average dentist. You know, mm. I, had to, I had to really hustle to make it happen. And as you know, I don't have to tell you, but the people listening today, they need to know it. But you, you already know it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, um, I know there's a story that you told me regarding how you got fed up with the, the corporate entity you were working with towards the end before you branched out on your own. Oh. And you tell this really good story of how much you were producing and how much you were taking home. Can you share that with us? I feel like I'm hearing a lot of young dentists that are getting wrapped up with DSOs expressing something very similar. And yeah, also, well, can, can you also, Steve, can you also tell us the year? Because I want people to see that, you know, corporate dentistry has been around way longer than we think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, I, I worked there from 1986 to uh, 1994. And, um, and and I gotta tell you, they were around probably for ten years before that. Wow. Yeah. So, um, um, but anyhow, yeah, I worked for them really hard. Um, in in eight years that I worked for them, there was never a patient complaint. There was never any lawsuits. There was never any board complaints. And I and towards the end, when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do at that point, I I asked for a raise. And they told me that they couldn't afford it, you know, and and I knew darn well that they could really afford it, you know. It just, you know, but 
you don't want to begrudge it too much. Everybody has their own view in life of how they want to deal with their own money. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, so I just decided that was a really good time for me to move on and do my own thing because number one, I had the training and business I needed. And number two, I certainly had eight years of, of working like a dog and I had really good dental experience. So between my dental experience and my, and my ability to work really hard, I, it was time to go, you know? Okay. Not, not to press you on specifics, but I, I think sometimes they can be important. I do remember you saying that there was a certain amount of production towards the end that you hit as the office you were managing versus what your take home was at the time. And when you did the math on that, you were like this. Oh, this, yeah. Yeah. I was I was probably making probably percentage wise of what I was probably getting paid 15 percent of what I was producing. Yeah. And and as you know, if you when you leave the like place like Southern California, where it's really dog eat dog, you know, like like you go away, the average pay is like 28 to 32 you know, percent. So and I, at that time, I knew I had enough experience. And I knew I was good. And I figured it was time to like do my own thing and move on. Gotcha. So, uh, Steve, can, let me ask you a question about this, really. So if somebody's young and they're coming out and some yeah. um, some DSOs will basically say, hey, I'm going to give you a guarantee flat salary, okay, versus right. a percentage. And if you're coming out and they say, let's just say that this company says, I'll give you $160,000 guaranteed salary versus yep. 30 to 35% of, uh, you know, adjusted collection or adjusted production, right? right? Which one would you take? And the reason why I say that is because my own experience was like this. The first um, company I ever worked with before I went to Perio um, basically said, I'll give you the 160. And I said, oh man, that's incredible. I'm coming out of school. I'm poor. I thought 160, I had made it rich. I mean, I'm talking to my friends. I'm going out to dinners. Like, this is the first time I've ever done anything like this. You know what I mean? I'm talking about like some good steak, you know? <laughs> and so I'm thinking 160, I'm rich. Until I decided to go to Perry. I worked that year. And then I basically did my numbers. And I realized that I was getting about 12% of what I actually produced. Yeah. So then I looked at and I was like, well, what was the point? If I would have gotten 20, I would have made way more. You know, Absolutely. so 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 what advice would you give to these students coming out when it comes to seeing a guarantee versus something you have to work for? Well, I would I would say really, it really it's it depends how well they know themselves. If they know that they feel very comfortable and doing things, let's say faster than the average person can do it, then sure, they're way better off doing the percentage, especially if they see that there's a, a constant patient flow but you know if someone that's really right out of school and really doesn't have that comfortable feeling of you know ever doing everything yet they might want to take the guarantee until they have a year experience i'll tell you what i found we're hiring you know dr Hoyt knows i've hired 300 people over my career probably you know and and i would say if i took 10 dentists two of them were gifted okay meaning that that somehow in school situation they were out they were able to accomplish a lot more you know really feel good about what they're doing and able to do it i would say six more really average for coming out of school just i knew what to expect from them and i would say two more unfortunately i had to find a nice way of telling them that they needed to get more experience before they could work here you know 
Yes. Yes. So, so <laughs> that's that's that, that's what I found out over the years. And uh, so if you were and and the, and the doctors who were the, those two were really good. I found they also knew that how much money they wanted to make, and they would tell me how they wanted to get paid. You know, and I ended up negotiating because they were very aggressive in how they wanted to get paid. You know, and the and the other six average ones, I usually started them out with a guarantee because they they I think it was better for them because they didn't have to feel pressured to work um, maybe faster than they were comfortable, and maybe that wouldn't you know would lower their quality, right? So I think I think by doing that for the first six months or year was good, and then we always had a bonus system based on on uh, um, average monthly uh, daily production over a month, we had a bonus system. I felt that worked good for me, you know? Um, I would say if I calculated it, probably they were making, someone who just was, you know, so-so, was probably doing in the 25%, maybe 25 or 26% of the production, or the collection numbers, I would say. And then people who would hustle could do, let's say, 28 you know, the 30, we, we, we were in a position to pay 35 because our fees were generally very low as, as I don't have to tell Dr. Martin, he knows we were working off the low fees, but, but, but in general, I think, I think if someone could hustle really good, they're probably better off going on a percentage if they really, if they really feel comfortable with themselves and they can hustle. But I also found that other than those two out of 10 that come out gifted, the other six probably took about a year and a half um, to really feel comfortable doing extractions, doing the root canals. You know, they, they needed a year and a half. And, and when I say year and a half, I mean like a year and a half working for us, which was, you know, really, you know, hustling, right? If, you, if they went to work for someone that really wasn't expanded and they didn't get to do much, in a year and a half, they'll still be where they were when they graduated pretty much. Right. You know, yeah. well, I got into a, a little social media back and forth with someone a while back and I sent it to Walt to get his yeah. opinion. But it was a you know brand new grad who was making comments on a post um, regarding offices starting off new grads at a guaranteed thousand dollars a day. Right. Brand new grad. So if you can give us just some hypothetical numbers in your general run of the mill office. Um, what do you think it would look like for someone to be justifiably making a thousand dollars today as the base guarantee, let alone, you know, before you add any bonus structures or yeah. anything, because I don't think a lot of new doctors know what it takes. Yeah. I would say that it would, it would take in, in a, in a, it would take $3,500 a day of production collected to be able to pay somebody a thousand dollars guaranteed. And what is that, you know, in a typical day as a general dentist, um, do you think that's an easy target to make for someone that's new? Um, or do you think that's more for a seasoned doctor where you could predictably make that much plus? I, I, once again, it gets back to the one and a half years of experience hustling. I think to comfortably do that in a day, you have to have that year and a half for the average dentist. But those two gifted people they were able to do it within, you know, three months. Yeah. Let but me, the average one, those six out of 10, it takes a year and a half. So when we're looking at dentistry right now, 
and I yeah. want your opinion on this, your honest opinion. You remember back in the 70s and 80s, you know, 80s and 90s, like how dentistry was, right? You could go and open your own practice and so forth. I saw a stat that basically said that by 2025, 2030, we're going to have DSOs be about 50% of dentistry. And you see a lot of people selling to DSOs because DSOs now have deep pockets with venture capitalists investing in them. What? How does that look for dentists in general? How does that look for dentistry in general? Do you think that's a positive, negative, or or even? Like you don't really think it's going to change much of dentistry? Oh, boy. That's a loaded um, question, I know. That's a real loaded question. And of course, I'll always be honest. Please. <laughs> I would say, I would say it's it, in big cities, it's probably more positive than negative, you know? Um I think, um, I think, because when you okay, if you if you have one office, two offices, three, and you have de dentists working for you, you know you have to make each office really pay for itself, right? So your 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 percentage of of uh, of, um, of profit has to be decent. If you have five hundred offices like the DSOs do, they don't look at it that way. They look at each office just making a little bit of money, but not being in the negative. Because with 500 offices, they're looking at having every office cover itself, make a little bit of profit, and then the investors getting paid back some money, okay? And of course, the CEOs getting paid. So, so you know, I don't know what the actual numbers are, all, but let's say with, a, with, a, with a DSOs, if you have 500 offices and each office can profit 10%, they're probably doing really, really well. Right. But in a private office, if you're profiting 10 percent, you need to close the doors, <laughs> you know. So that's that's the difference. And so so when you go to when when they hire young guys, they could probably afford to hire a young guy probably for more money than a small private office could afford to pay. And with Dr. Horton, you agree with that? I, th I think so. I think. Yeah. Um... You're right in the fact that if they only have to make, you know, eight to 10 percent off each office, whereas we individually would have to make at least 25 exactly. percent to be able to have money to live off of and pay our expenses. Right. Um, they could probably, you know, pass that extra percentage down so they can recruit doctors and keep the wheels going in their offices better than right. we can. Well, okay, so if that's the if that's what's happening. Then is it realistic for these new graduates to be so against corporate dentistry when they're the only ones that seems, based on what you guys are saying, to be able to hire these doctors and give them a higher pay? Like, is it realistic for these new docs to say, "I want to work for a uh, you know an office that's you know uh, um, fee for service" or "I want to work for this private guy"? Is that really? reasonable now no i don't think so not not in the big cities because the because it's not where it's going and and those jobs are not going to be available if they believe that it's because they're hearing it from some older retired guy that probably doesn't like it you know you know but but in a small town still i don't see the place for dso's really in a small town setting so much you know um uh, why why I is it I just think they don't have the mass populations that they need to drive into DSOs to make it happen. I think that fits more a slow practice with higher fees, you know, and, you know, and, and uh, I think where a guy could 
can make a living without having to produce a lot of money, you know, because he has a higher he has a higher um, profit margin because his expenses are less. You know, in big cities, the rents kill you. You know, em- employment kills you. As you know, right now we're going through this very, very, very weird situation where suddenly there's nobody looking to work in the dental industry. You know, and and no one seems to really know why. I've been trying to figure it out. I know Dr. Horton and I have been trying to figure it out. It's just like you can't find hygienists, you can't find you can't find assistants, and it all started with COVID. You know, but I don't know that COVID is the whole blame, but it certainly took a part in it. Um, we could. I used to take ads out in the newspapers or the or uh, you know Craigslist, you know stuff like that, and. I could get uh, the next morning I'd wake up and there'd be 10 or even 20 applications for dental assistance. And I'd go through the resumes and I'd pick the ones I'd wanted to interview. And then they would come over and I'd interview them and I'd be able to pick. Now I could take and add those same ads out and I'd get zero responses the next day, zero. And I asked myself, how is that possible? You know, but no one really seems to have the answer. Right. And and so let me ask you this. So you you mentioned this notion of 3500 a day, right? Yeah. And we also know cuz we haven't even gotten into insurance companies, right? And so let's yeah. say your your general reimbursement for a crown is say 750 from Delta Dental. Mm-hmm. Right? So to do that you would have to do what five or six uh crowns a day in a private yeah. office. Right. With the saturation level, how easy easy is it to be able to get five or six crowns per day consistently to be able to make that type of living for someone, especially in the big cities. You can't. And that's, and that is the problem now because um, there's, there are just so many in big cities. There's so many like say DSOs and, and other people that are so competitive that they'll take every single PPO. Okay. No matter how low it is, $500, whatever it is. And people will go there. Because the general, you know, the general consensus of, of patients is that dentists are all rich, right? And we don't work hard enough for our money. If, and, and it's really true. You know, okay, this would be a great time to tell you one of my stories, okay? Okay, okay. If you don't mind, okay? Go ahead. I was, I was on an airplane, and it must have been about mm, 15 years ago. And I was on an airplane, I think I was going to Chicago, and there was a guy sitting next to me, a little bit older than me, and he was going to his 50th year high school year reunion you know and and uh we were talking he says what do you do you know i said well i'm a dentist and he goes oh man i just had a crown done you guys are so expensive he went in, he went into that song and dance so i thought it was a really great opportunity to ask him i said okay i'm gonna ask you a question but you really got to be honest with me you won't hurt my feelings just tell me the truth i go i go i go right now if you came to my office and you needed a crown I want you to tell me honestly how much you would, you know, money would be when you would take your checkbook out and you would just write that checkbook to Dr. Page, you know, write that check to Dr. Page for that amount of money, and you would say to yourself, Oh, that's that's really fair. It's you know, it's worth it, no problem. I just need you to be honest with me. And at that time, the average crown price was mm, seven hundred dollars, six, seven hundred dollars, and we were doing them for four hundred dollars, right? So I said to him, So what would that number be? And the guy says to me, $150. So, and, and I, I know. And that's when I looked at the guy and said, listen, I go, I'm not mad at you. But like I said, but you got to understand, 
my overhead per hour is about $300, okay? And it, it takes me two visits and let's say two hours to do the, to do the job. I can't possibly have an overhead of $600 and have you pay me $150, you know? And the, and the reason it's so important is because I'm sure that what he, he was being honest with me, right? And I'm sure what he said, he meant it. And I'm sure that if I asked, you know, 10 people, they would probably give me a similar number. Mm-hmm. And, and so they have no idea of the overhead of a dental practice. And so, you know, if, if insurance companies are, are putting out that subliminal, subliminal thought that, you know, we make a lot of money and, and you know, we're, we're, over, we're all overpriced, you're not going to be able to beat them at that game. No. So who do you think is to be blamed for that when it comes to um, the perception of how important dentistry is to people? Do you think it's us whenever you look and you see, you know, your neighbor dentist saying, oh, free cleaning, free whitening and all this other free stuff. Right. Because I've never mm-hmm. gone to a primary care physician and gotten free anything except for, <laughs> you know, except for maybe. No, I think they charged me for that Tylenol they gave me. Uh, right. <laughs> and I could have went to the CVS to get that. So, and I got charged, I think, double the price what it would have been to, you know. So I've never seen pharmacists. I've never seen dentists do anything like that. But for some, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, physicians do anything like that. But dentists, I feel like we're racing to the bottom. And I want to know from your experience, from when you started dentistry until now, wh- I mean, what what happened where we basically said, how can we undercut each other to the point where we're basically doing free stuff? Um, I think because we're all desperate to be successful, where, you know, to be a dentist, you have to have a certain type of personality. You have to be that success-driven guy. And I think we are success-driven. And um, some people are willing to work like like I have, like Dr. Horton has, at a very fast rate because we're competent with it, we're comfortable with it, and we work at a lower price. Uh, other people just don't want to do that. And I think, to answer your original question, which is what gave that perception to patients, I think it's twofold. I think, one, it is that people don't understand what the overhead is, at least which we already said, and the other thing is I think that there are a certain amount of very expensive dentists out there who do have the attitude, this is my price. If you don't like it, you go somewhere else. And I think a certain amount of people run into that dentist before they go to the other type. Mm. You know, and I think, and I think so that all that and and the third thing would be the insurance companies, the way they run things. You know, they they won't raise price uh, reimbursements until the pressure is so high to do it. And as we all know, right now, we're in a real crunch time. This time, there's never been a time that I remember in the past 38 years when the insurance companies have been putting a crunch on us as hard as they are right now. And just to give you some idea, when I started in dentistry, I could run a dental practice, and even at my lower fees, and I could run a 30% profit margin. When I sold my last practice, my profit margin was 8% when I sold it. And and that's one of the reasons why I said it was time to retire. You know, they just, without, without either raising my prices far beyond what the PPOs would pay me and have to have, and have to make the patients pay that much if they would stay. But the, the complication is 
really they could just go down the street and find somebody else and not have to pay it, right? So until the insurance companies raise the reimbursements, we're really stuck in this place right now, you know? And, uh, and you know, to give you an example, not even using general dentistry, when I started in dentistry, the average um, orthodontic treatment, let's say, was about $4,000 for start to finish to get ortho treatment for your children, let's say. And the insurance companies reimbursed about $1,500 to $2,000 at 50%. So basically, if they re reimbursed $2,000 and the treatment was $4,000, the insurance would give $2,000, and then the patient would pay $2,000, right? Today, the average, the average ortho treatment in a big city is $8,000. They still give a $2,000 reimbursement. So now you're talking about 25% of the cost is only covered by the insurance company. How, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you fight that? You know, it's like they, they don't have to do what they don't have to do. And there's not a single insurance company to my knowledge that has raised, raised that reimbursement above $2,000 that I, that I know of, that, that I'm aware of. Well let, me, well, let me ask you this, because that's a great point. And I remember I actually had to look this up while we were talking. The year was 2012, and there was this yeah. huge uproar because, uh, who was it, James Dwyer was the CEO of Delta Dental. And they had just announced a whole lot of uh, reimbursement cuts. And when they asked him, you know, the reporter asked him, well, how do you expect dentists to make up for that? He had this extremely flippant remark where he basically said, well, they're just going to have to start working hard like the rest of us. Well, right. he also said they'll have to stop playing golf on Friday and work an extra day. Exactly. This is a guy that made $1.2 million a year at the time as a CEO painting us as these money hungry, overly rich, you know. Um, so what do you yeah. think the answer is? Can we band together as dentists? Can we do anything to fight the insurance company as you've seen over the years in the different areas you practice? Well, back in 2012, what you're referring to, I remember the Washington State Dental Association, you know, having a lot of talks with the with the with the membership, and they were talking about doing things. And if I remember right, uh, they were threatened by the insurance companies with collusion if they if they continued. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm not I don't I'm not really up on the legal you know legal term exactly what collusion means, but I remember there was some threat about about you know be careful about collusion you know yeah. and so they pretty much uh the the membership backed off and that and, and and they let it happen where they cut the fees but but the you know, funny thing is insurance companies sure they collude too but they just don't do it they don't do it in a way that's called collusion so so for example okay you know being a little facetious but if 300 dentists got together and they met in a pub somewhere and they all said hey guys let's all get together and drop out of WDSPPO at the same time, so they have less providers, they would call that collusion. And according to the law, that probably is what collusion is. But if you are if you're Washington Dental Service or you're Aetna or or or, or uh, United Concordia or any PPO, um, and let's say one of the big ones, your competitors lowers their price down, you just lower your price down because you know they did. Or if they raise it up, you go. Oh, we could raise ours up too. It's no collusion. You're not meeting in a bar and talking about raising your prices. You just look at what's going on in the in the industry and you just follow suit, you know? And that's that's the problem with in general with really large corporations controlling a lot of one industry, you know.
So that's the, the the George Carlin saying where he says, uh, you don't need an official conspiracy where interests converge. Exactly. Right? So they don't have to meet in the boardroom and talk about that. As long as their interests are all, you know, oh, you raised, okay, I'll raise mine. Oh, you raising yours? Yeah. No, we don't exactly. even have to meet, right? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right, Dr. Horton. That's, uh, that's what it is, you know? Uh, and and they have the power and we don't. And, uh, and like I said, so with the perception of us being these, you know, money hungry guys, just trying to make a lot of money and everything else, we have very little, little power. So in answer to Walter's question, I don't know how you fight that. I don't know how you overcome that, how you educate the public as to that's just not true that we're these mean ogres, you know what I'm saying? Um, only maybe on an individual basis in, in the dental chair, you know, with, with your patients that you know, you can maybe convert that, that thought process. But other than that, uh, unless you have some better idea than me, I can't think of any to, to fight that, you know? Well, okay, let me ask you this question about um... The, uh, I'm going to call it the history of dentistry, right? Yes. So there've been times in dentistry when we went from like the aesthetic time in dentistry, I think it was the uh, early or late nineties to early two thousands where everybody was doing like veneers and, you know, um, uh, composite veneers and so forth. Right. And then we went to sleep apnea and then implants became hot. And then we started doing, you know, uh, ortho with Invisalign and so forth. And I find that we keep going to these little phases of what's exciting and what's going to make you a lot of money. And that we have all these gurus talking and stuff like that. Have you noticed that more and more with dentistry as we've gone along or is this something that, and, and and do you think that people that are doing it are becoming educated or is it one of those things where let me just take a weekend course. Now, all of a sudden I'm doing this implant and I'm doing, you know, veneers and full mouth rehabs, you know, I, because we yeah. fall into these phases where we, people get excited about something, sleep, right. apnea, whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, for me personally, if I didn't do some um, specialized treatments in my career, I would have been bored a long time ago. You know, I mean, seriously, I, I've done a lot of orthodontics and I've uh, done lots and lots of dental implants, bone grafting, sinus lifts, the whole thing. And if I didn't do that, I would have, bo have been bored 15 years ago. But um, in your question to can, can it be done safely? Right. Um, and is it, is, it a, is it like a fad as we go along? Like every five years, there's a new fad. Would you consider no, it to be a fad or... No, I think it's I think it's necessity because you can only do so many fillings and crowns. And I think out of necessity to keep the money flowing and keep your interest in dentistry, I think you do those things. Not everybody, but I would say 80% do. The question is, can it be done safely? And Dr. Horton and I talk about this a lot. And we know that, well, I know Dr. Horton's really good. You know, I feel that I'm really good. So, but we, we have put the time in and time to get educated and the time doing whatever we had to do to get the knowledge that we were comfortable and good practitioners. I, I can't say that everybody does that, right. you know? And so, so how do you know if they do, or they don't as dentists, we know, does the public know? Probably not. You know, you know, I mean, that's, and that's, that's one of the things I think, I think if the public uh, really wants to, they, they have the right to ask their dentist, like, you know, where did you get your training and how much hours did you, spend learning and you know so and so right i think i think the public could could do that do they do that probably not but they certainly could well but then how does the public know right because a lot of people one thing that i don't think 
uh, people and dentists really understand is how much trust somebody has for a dentist. You know, there have been times where they're like, why, why, why don't you just do that? Why do you need to spend, send me to this person? And and that some dentists are forced to basically talk patients into going somewhere versus saying, hey, I just don't know how to do this. Right. Yeah. So how do we educate patients to ask the right questions? And this podcast is trying to do that. But how do we as dentists educate patients to ask the right questions so they can get the right answer? You know, and, and you know, and also when it comes to getting a second opinion, I feel like that has to be something that should be talked about more often versus a, a taboo situation. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, um because I, I, you know, you know, I look at myself. I'm getting older. I'm 71 years old. You know, knock on wood, I'm healthy, right? But, but you know, as you get older and older, things happen. And so I've I've asked myself. Let's say I needed, you know, a heart operation, right? I would literally say, how do I know the guy I just went to is any good, right? I mean, and I'm and I'm a professional, right? But if I went to a professional that was going to do heart surgery on me, I would have no way of knowing whether that person was going to be doing good for me or not. And it's a scary thought, right? So I don't really have an answer to your question because I thought about that me, for me going on in life that one day I'm going to have to make those decisions for who knows what. And so um, I don't have an answer, but I would I would welcome anything you could offer on that <laughs> or, or Dr. Horton could offer on that. Right, right. Um, you know, because it is a tough, it is a tough question. Uh, we generally... We ask our friends, right? Yeah. And we ask we ask our family members who maybe have had a similar thing done, right? And see what their outcome what their outcome is. So I guess that's about the best answer I could give you, right? You would ask your friends and your family members who might have had similar things done and had good outcomes. Well, let's well let's stay on the hard question trend here. Yeah. Um, you know, Walt or you know. Good friend, Walt's a periodontist. I'm right. soon to be periodontist. And yeah. we know that there's a culture war between specialists and GPs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if I was to play devil's advocate and put the protective specialist hat on and say, right. well, Steve, you're just a GP. What right. makes you think you should be doing implants? And That's I know you've really heard that question before. Because yep. I, I heard oh, it when yeah. I was a GP doing it. Oh, yeah. How, how do you respond? How does that make you feel? And how do you respond to that? And how would I respond to a specialist saying that to me? Right. And then what's the conversation yeah. me and you would have afterwards? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. So I respond, respond to the specialist saying that to me. Like I would say, yeah, some specialists are highly, um, uh, um, uh, highly trained and highly talented. Right. And yes, they would do a better job than I will. But your average, your average periodontist, probably doesn't do it any better than me because I know who I am and I know my training and I know my, my, my ability. And I would say, you know, but once again, somebody just going to a periodontist office, how do they know that that's, uh, uh, you know, a highly trained periodontist versus a hack? How do they know? Yeah. Right. So, but as I, but when I talk to you, right. As, a, as, as, you know, and my friend and colleague, you know, we both know that in all, all special training programs, the training in a specialist program is pretty minimal, you know, and and there's a lot of lot of them come out that it takes them a long time before they really get a handle on their specialty, right? Someone yeah. who comes comes right out, you know, I don't want to sound really audacious, but I probably do better than them, right. you know. I mean, but 
you know, but so it's like everything else for the for the patient, they don't really have a good way of knowing whether somebody is a talented person or not. You know, just like I don't know if that heart heart surgeon is really talented or not. You know, um, so that's why I go back to once again, no matter where you go to, you got to go on recommendations. You got to ask your friends. You got to ask your family members. You know, um, but um, but in general, um, uh, the real question, the really the real question is, does a, I guess does a periodontist who goes to the perio program does a higher percentage of them get really good at their trade versus a general dentist doing it? who gets good at the trade. There I might say some specialist who goes through the program, since that's all they're gonna do over time, they'll probably get more talented over time than someone who who dabbles in everything. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so, so to some degree, um, I think over time, a specialist will get better at the at that part of dentistry but once again not every specialist is going to be as talented as another guy you know or another girl let's say you know so that's does that answer your question i guess no it it, it really does because one thing yeah. that i've seen is that a lot of programs as they choose whether it's os ortho perio they choose off of didactics academics and scores Course, yeah. And that really doesn't always translate into hand skills. And I've seen some extremely talented specialists, but I've seen some GPs that were just artists, like yeah. blow me out the water. You know, I feel I feel like I'm a pretty good clinician, but I've seen like we had one guy in our um, in, in my class. His name was Christian. The most beautiful, gorgeous wax ups you've ever seen from day one. He was just extremely talented. I think he ended up going into to endo. But it's it it is interesting to see who gets chosen for these specialties, and then the um, the culture within that specialty of we're the best, we're superior because we did this and so forth. When that doesn't all, like you said, it doesn't always translate. But you're right. If you do one thing or one set of things, and that's all you do, over time you probably will improve far beyond someone that is a you know jack of all trades and not necessarily right. master. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. And I believe, and I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. So, but I mean, but um, everybody's gonna like the patients themselves, like, like, you know, like Walter said that, that some patients like to go to a specialist. Some patients don't. Some will say to the general dentist, Oh, please don't, don't, don't send me to that specialist, whether it's money or whatever, they, they feel comfortable with that dentist and rather stay there if they can do it. Right. right. Others, you say go to specialists, they're out, they're out the door, you know? <laughs> so so it, it varies, I think, patient to patient a lot. And I don't know why the patient would choose that, that really. It might just be their comfort level with the general dentist, I guess, you know? So you know? As, as time has gone on, uh, we've gotten better with technology, we'll say, right? We'll say technology's improved, right? Yeah. But I've also noticed that in dentistry, I'm not sure if the quality of work has improved, meaning that, you know, I've seen patients get crowns where I've been told, right, because they, they send them to me for extractions. And I've seen a patient get a crown and a year, year late, a year and a half later, this crown has broken, you know, fractured, this this tooth has broken down, whatever it may be. And all of a sudden I'm taking this tooth out when I'm not sure is, you know, if it's just the fact that now we have 
you know, in-house mills and, you know, uh, we have a lot of stuff that now dentists are doing in-house versus sending to a lab and the lab tech who was trained to do a lot of this stuff. What do you see when it comes to technology and dentistry and has that technology made dentistry better or has it made it worse? Like basically if you were doing crappy dentistry, now you're doing crappy dentistry faster. Yeah. <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, well, yeah, I, I, I felt like, right. I felt like back in the day, I remember when we were in school, we had to do our wax ups and then we had to learn how to, uh, you know, cast our crowns and so forth. So we had to learn all that stuff. Now it's just send it to a machine, hope that your margins are correct. Let the machine do the work. You put it on and then you basically use the cement to hold on to dear life. And then that's it. Right. Yeah. And I feel well, like, that's where dentistry is gone. But tell me from what you've seen, uh, if, that, if that's what you're seeing as well, and if you agree with that. Right. Well, I think, okay, well, I, I think the technology in dentistry is definitely making dentistry better in the right hands. In other words, what good is technology if you don't use it well, right? So, so but I think, if in the, in the right hands and the technology is used well, I think technology is wonderful. Just a, a really great example of technology, as you know, implants, right? You used to freehand all your implants off of a two-dimensional panoramic x-ray, right? Then you got CTs, three-dimensional x-rays, which would help you visualize your hand, you know, your hand done, you know, done, done by hand better. And now you got, you know, CTs with the models laid over them and with the software that can make you a surgical guide that can pinpoint it to within, let's say, a half of a millimeter. And now they even have robots that won't even let you vary off the, off the track, as you know. So I think in the good, in good hands, I think the, the machines are great, but the cost is the issue. You know, some of them are really prohibitive cost-wise, but over time they always come down in price, which is really good. But I think the real problem what, what you alluded to with margins and stuff. I think dentistry in itself is, is, is an art. I've always said um, that we don't put your tooth back to what God, you know, I'll say God, right? We don't put your tooth back to what God made it. We patch it. And we do a really good job of patching it, right? It's amazing when you think that I've seen people come in on my office who had a crown in their mouth for 40 years. 40. Think of all the, the the abuse that crown gets for 40 years. But here's the thing. When the crown was originally done, if the tooth was in relatively good condition when that crown was done, done well, that crown will last 40 or 50 years. But if the tooth was really in beat up condition when it was done, and the practitioner made the decision to put that crown on that tooth, rather than say, you know, maybe with was wasting this money and we should take that tooth out and, and opt for an implant or a bridge, then yeah, then that crown will break off in two years and then you look kind of foolish, but but those are decisions we all make every day, right? And some of the, as you know, some of those decisions are hard to make because you don't really want to tell a patient to take the tooth out and then get a bridge or implant. So you try to do, you know, we call dental heroics, right? And you do or heroidontics, whatever they say, and they and you try to do save things that maybe maybe was a bad choice to save in the first place. Hmm. Am, I, am I answering your questions for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, hmm. I I just I just I look at 
I look at dentistry and it's beneficial for me, I'll be honest, because I'm taking more teeth out, but I'm not sure how beneficial it is for patients when they pay so much. And yeah. then, you know, something doesn't last as long as they would think or research would tell us. Right. And that's the part that I'm looking and saying, are we doing too much? Are we basically, like you said, trying to be heroes and saving teeth when they they shouldn't be saved? Now you have a patient doing root canal, putting a crown on that too. So that's expensive right there. Yeah. And then on top of that, a few years later, a few months later, whatever it may be, that that same tooth is now being extracted and we're talking about implants or whatever it may be. And I just yeah. don't know if we're benefiting patients by doing things like this. And then are we doing too much of that now? Or is this something I, that just as time's gone by, this is what's happening? In general, I do believe that there's too much periodontics being done. I, I have seen it by doctors who've worked for me, people I've known. I think there, there does come a time when you have to unfortunately tell the patient you're just going to waste your money. Like you say, you get a, you get a root canal, then you get a crown, then, then it breaks off, and then you got extracted, do an implant. Um, I think I think that's wrong. But then if you know you know if you know Leroy and myself, we have many times if if in the office if someone came in with a situation like that where a tooth broke off like uh, you know two years later, we always gave them credit towards what they paid towards the implant. I've always done that. I, but I know most people wouldn't do that, but we have done that. And I, and I think I think every practitioner needs to look at their, their work. They need to look at their pocketbook and say, you know, there's a time where you just don't think about the money. There's a time where you just got to do the right thing, right? Well, then and, here's a follow-up real quick with that, though. A lot of, you know, associates come into the offices and they stay, uh, you know, a year. So they're, they've already left. When that patient well, comes back, I was going to ask what that do, same oh, thing. You, yeah, <laughs> what do we do I in that tell situation? You those all day long, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can. We can be until tomorrow. Okay. You know. So, well, so Roy, what, do you, what, what do you do in that situation? You know, like that. I mean, when, when are we just going to just take a hit for that office? And if it's a corporate office, how does that work? Is the patient going to have to repay because that doctor that served you isn't here anymore? Yeah, I don't I don't know what a corporate office does, but in my offices, I within any what I felt was any reasonable time frame, um, I would fix it for free. Uh, in fact, I just I just talked to Leroy today about a case that I'm gonna pay him to do because um, one of the doctors did something that failed, and it was in a practice that I just sold. So I'm gonna give Leroy the money to fix it because I felt that it should have lasted longer. And so that's a typical example. But do I think everybody does that? I think your average practitioner will bite their tongue really hard before they before they do that. But I think that leads us into a great <laughs> um, a great topic because we we talked about associate pay structure. We talk about how much students uh, how much debt students are graduating with and the pressures they feel, mm -hmm. how much money they think they should or need to make. A does the pressures that they feel potentially influence their decision-making and treatment planning as, as you've maybe observed with different providers yeah. and B as a, as an owner, how do you mitigate someone who's a gunner who all of a sudden they walk in and in a practice that's only maybe done 10 crowns a week. Now they're finding 50 knowing that they're only going to be around, like Walt said, a year, year and a half. Right. And you have to deal with the aftermath. How, what do you think is going on there and how do you deal with that as an owner? Yeah. Well, I just think it gets down to the same thing that I said about 10 dentists coming to work for me, two of them being really good and I didn't have to worry about them. 
uh, the six that were average. Um, the ones that were kind of average, but maybe a little less, I would have to watch more carefully, right? And if I saw a lot of things they were doing that I didn't agree with, I would talk to them. And I would say, my rules are, you know, let's say for a crown, right? My rules were, were I, I would never let someone crown just somebody who had a large silver filling, okay? There had to be had to be more than that. It had to be recurrent decay or crack a crack cusp. There had to be a better reason for just doing it just then because they could do a crown on a charge, right? So so I have rules and I put them down and I and I said, these are the rules, my rules. And you know, once I put my rules down, my rules weren't anything that was that would change their quality of their doing the dentistry. I wasn't saying anything that would put them at any kind of, you know, um uh, legal or you know quality risk, right? I just said I'm trying to be fair to everybody. This, these are my rules, and if they follow them, I had never had problems. That, not not much, right? So over the years, the story we just said, like you have to redo something. I'm paying you. That you know, I mean, that only happened like I would say at most it would happen two, three times a year, you know. So it wasn't it wasn't a a, a financial um, burden, is what I'm saying. Okay, but yeah, if I probably hired. The guys at the lower rung, right, or the girls, the guys and girls at the lower rung, and I didn't pay a lot of attention to what was going on. It, it might have gotten a little bit out of hand, you know. But I was always there, always paying attention, and I always knew who I had to like give a little more time to, and not, you know. You were always my superstar, right? So you know, when you came in, I just said, yeah, you know, I just saw, I saw who you were, and I said, I don't have to worry, right? right. And and I always knew who I didn't have to pay attention to. And who I did. And, you know, when someone was really worried, 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 worrisome to me, I just, like I said, in the nicest way, I said to them, this office is too busy for you. You know, you need to find a job in an office that has a much slower pace and you need to do it for a year or two years and get your, your comfort level up. Because everybody develops that at a different rate, as you know. Absolutely. You know, yeah. um, so... <laughs> I guess I'm going to, I want to ask this question in, in the nicest way I can possibly find to ask. Uh, I'm, I'm very bad at this, as people know. <laughs> right? No, um, no you're, you're great, man. You're great. You're great. Do, do you think, um, because there's a lot of, you know, new dentists that, you know, they're in their feelings, right? If somebody fires them, it's their fault. If somebody says, hey, you may not need, you may not you know, be able to work here because it's high pace and all this other stuff. They'll turn around and tell everybody that it was you as the owner because you as the owner is either greedy or whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> do you think well, I, that I dentistry, yeah, right. Do you think that the new kids are growing or are, are coming out of school without the realism of, of what dentistry is going to bring you? Because I remember when I graduated, my advisors, my mentors were like, it's going to be hard. You need to look at your numbers. You need to see how long it takes you to do this, this and this. And, and I still have the same mentors to now where they tell me, like, have did you do you know what your numbers are? How fast can you do this? If you, you're doing a root canal and you can't access it in 10 minutes, send that out because that's a waste of your time. You're not profitable. You're, you know, talking business. Yeah, now I feel like everybody says, I feel I deserve this. I feel I deserve <laughs> that. And there is no realism when it comes to actual business. And how do I contribute to an office, which is a business? The, oh, it's absolutely true that new grads, for the most part, don't have any clue as to the business of dentistry whatsoever. None. 
But they want to get paid a lot. <laughs> and they want to get paid a lot because here's the thing. Someone who's not that skilled, I found, doesn't know it. Okay? They don't know it. And so that's why I always very gentle with them when I let them go because, because sure, I'd like to say, you know, hey, you really stink. You know, you've got a problem. <laughs> You know, but 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 I but I would never say that, right? I'd always say this office is too busy for you. You got to slow down, and you know, and and maybe that's what they really need, right? Or maybe they're just that person that's never going to be talented, no matter what, right? But either way, I don't want them working for me because I don't want the headaches that come with it, right? Which is why, answer your question. That's why my headaches were minimal because I never let it go, let it go on too long if I felt that, right? Um, so. You know, but but as far as the business of dentistry, nobody comes out of school with any knowledge of the business of dentistry. You know, when I even when I graduated, you know, I really believe, I really honestly believe, if, if I opened up dental practice, you know, and I and I um, and I uh, was going to do a crown somebody, and I said, Mr. Jones, you know, uh, that crown will be you know six hundred dollars, and I thought they would take their checkbook out and say, no problem, who do I make it out to? You know what I mean? Well, I quickly, I very quickly realized that that was just not true, right? So, so the average, I think, I think anybody that comes out of dental school, unless their father was a dentist or their mother was a dentist or something like that, really has no clue as to the numbers and the business in answer to you guys' questions. You know? Now, 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 how many of your former associates have called you after they've left and opened their own practice and said, Dr. Page? I get it now. Yeah. On all those things that we disagreed on that I thought you needed to give more, do more. I get it. Cause I've gotten at least three or four of those calls from, from ones that work for our two offices, but you've probably got a lot more. Yeah. I haven't so much got calls, but when I would go to some CE course somewhere and I'll, I always run into people that work for me or who I know. And that was something that came up all the time. You know, it's like, Wow. Dr. Page, I go, now that I got my own practice, I had no idea. And I hear it all the all the time. And so so I'm laughing that you do too, because that's true. Yeah. You know? Well, so me, Yeah, I'm sorry. No, let me ask you this last question um uh, from my end. Um, when it comes to what we see in dentistry now, how would somebody who wants to open a practice do it? Okay. And then do you think it's actually feasible now to open your own standalone practice? Or is it one of those things where you're just going to get swallowed up by DSO anyway? So what does it really matter? Well, if you're going to, if you can open up your own practice today, my advice would be you have to be willing to go out to the suburbs or even beyond that. I, I, I truly, but here's the thing, like, I mean, I'm a city boy, right? I grew up in, all, in big cities my whole life. I don't want to live in, um, I don't know, someplace in, East, Eastern Washington, I, you know, you know, what I mean, it's like, so for me, there's one choice, but if you're okay with going out of the city, there's no question about it. Starting a dental practice outside of the big cities is easier. Okay. Because once again, cause you don't have the DSO infusion, right. And you have people that are used to a different style of dentistry. So, so I think it's better if you're willing to do that, but if you want to stay in the city, you're right. You're going to have a really tough time with, what's going on with DSOs and everything. Um, I just think it'll be really difficult. Plus, you really should work for a while before you do it because if you have no experience, the dental supply people, I mean, I don't mean to beat on the dental supply companies, right? But if they get a hold of you and you tell them you want to open a practice, 
They will they will make sure that the architects get a hold of you and the contractors get a hold of you and they get a, and like and they do and they will not find the cheapest guy or some reasonable guy for you. They will find the most expensive person in town. You know, and I and I and I don't know it sounds really cruel to say, but I've seen this happen to so many people that I've known. And when they tell me what it costs them to open their practice, I just say to myself, God, I, I could have done that for for a half of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, Leroy knows this too. You know, yeah. and it's just it's sad. They, they there's there are vultures out there in the business. You know, they really exist. And so, somebody without experience, the worst thing they could do is try to open the practice without any business experience at all. That. I don't know how you even, I don't even know how you crawl out of that, you know? Well, well, here's a question for you. Do you think culturally we talk a lot about the gold standard yeah. being owning your own practice, having the million dollar practice and so forth. Yeah. Do you think ownership is for everyone? No, no, absolutely not. I think, I think with the DSOs, if you're going to hustle, you can make a good enough living that, that, Ownership might not be for you if you don't want the responsibility of employees. As you know, you we know, you know, there's lots of employees, there's lots of bills to pay, there's just so many things to do that take time out of your life besides just chair time. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it can be pretty taxing at times. So, so I think if someone doesn't want to do all that, then I think, you know, just hustling for seven hours during the day and going home is probably a good a good solution, you know? Would would you still tell a young person who comes from, you know, meager uh, financial backgrounds to see dentistry as an opportunity given the, the, the industry of student loan debt, practice debt and so forth? Well, you think it's still well, viable? That, well, that, that's the problem because, because there are so many things you could do today and have a fraction of the debt and make, a fair living, you know, um, and the cost of going to dental school now is so expensive that, yeah, I don't know how people crawl out of it. I mean, come people are coming out of debt now, like I hear $600,000. I mean, I, it would take you a lifetime to pay that off. When I, when I got my loan, you know, the, the maximum time you could spend to pay off the loan was 15 years. And I paid mine off in 12. Um, um, and before that, a couple of years before me, they would only give a 10 year loan. Now they give 25 year loans. It's like it's like a mortgage of a house. Yeah. So so I, I that would be scary to me. I, I'll be honest, that would be scary to me. But um, but if somebody really wants to be in the health sciences, you know, the healing sciences, I think I think then if you're gonna be a dentist or a doctor or or you know, or nurse or chiropractor, you're gonna have to spend the money. And unless unless the unless we start having different ways in this government where maybe people go to school, they don't pay, and then you go devote, you know, three or four years to community service, which I'm all for. I think that's probably should be an option for everybody, you know, because mm -hmm. not everybody wants to come out of school four, five, six hundred thousand dollars in debt. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wouldn't blame them because it's a scary thought, yeah. you know. I lied. Um, I have one more question. And I just thought sure. about this for you yeah. uh, before we wrap up here. But, but one question is, if you had to pick, who is the enemy of dent dentistry? Really? The enemy of dentistry. Insurance, dental schools, or corporations? 
If you had a pick, you got to pick one. If you had to pick one, that's the insurance company. That's that's easy for me. Insurance <laughs> companies. Yep. I think I think in general, they right now they offer so little for what the premiums are. If you think about it, if you think, I don't know the, all the numbers, let, but let's make one up. Let's say, for example, um, these some corporation pays some insurance company a hundred dollars a month for each for each employee for them to have some dental benefit. In most cases, if the dental benefits, let's say fifteen hundred dollars a year or something, you know, if they get one crown done, they now they've used up their benefit pretty much. So, so um, I think if they someone said to the employees, why don't I just give everybody a hundred dollars a month? Instead of buying dental insurance, I'll just give you $100 a month. Well, the people who need the dental work will still get $1,200 a year. They get about the same amount of benefit. And everybody else could do what they want with the money. You know, they could, they could save it. They could buy beer. I don't care, you know. But, but, you know, it seems to me like for the benefit that they give out for the money, it seems like a corporation would be better off spending the money just giving the people the money. Right. You know, no, you know, Walter interviewed a guy uh, recently. And what did he say, Walt, about I'm not getting dental insurance for the fifteen hundred. I'm getting it for the discount plan that comes with it. Right. And, you know, and obviously, that's another thing that, you know, our listeners, you know, if you're a practicing dentist, you already know. Not only do insurance companies dictate what they pay you and stuff they cover, but your contracts dictate what you can charge for their patients on stuff they don't cover. Exactly. Um, and that's why I, I think that's a, obviously a good answer to say that, you know, insurance companies are probably the number one enemy of, of dentistry because by controlling the purse, they in in indirectly uh, affect treatment decisions that are either partaken by the patient or that are offered by the, the clinician. Right. Well, they do, they do make decisions for how they pay you based on, what they think, and and in in essence, they're acting as as a provider when they do that. As, as a you know, they are making decisions that really go against the fact that it should be your decision, right? But right. but you know, I mean, it doesn't happen a lot, but it does on certain areas. Um, but I just feel that most of all, just for the what somebody's paying for that benefit for their employees, I just think the money could be spent better doing other things. I agree. Wow. Well, this was, you know, I, I love just talking to somebody who has a lot of experience in anything because you sit back and you realize two things. You realize one, uh, you, you don't have it that bad <laughs> because, yeah, because no, you, no. you've seen the gambit, you've seen the glory times, the great times, and you've seen now and you, you're like, you're like, it, you know, you've gone through it. So you actually know what it looked like when insurance didn't deal with everything. You know, yeah, we we're young no. to the game, so we don't have to, you know, we don't, we don't know what, what paradise looked like. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But then again, even before me, the people, people before me were saying it was really paradise, like dentists in the sixties and the seventies, you know, they were telling me that, man, you could, you could, you could open up an office right out of school and boom, you know, two months later, you're making a living. That's what they would say. But but I don't think that's been true since 1975. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, it, it, it's it's tough, man. But I, I hope that people are listening and kind of getting an idea. You know, the whole point of this is to try to kind of educate and, and say there's yeah. a way for us to get back to 
what we think. And I mean, again, I I think we're talking to people here who have enjoyed dentistry and, and like what we do. Oh, yeah. I think I think I think one thing I would like to say. So because if, if lay people listen to this, yeah, I would like them to know that nine out of no nine point eight out of ten out of ten dentists I know really enjoy what they do. As I know you do, right? Like we do. We're and we're a funny breed. We do dentistry because we really like it. You know? And but but at the same time, we want to make a living too, right? So so that's the conflict, right? The conflict is we love what we do. And some of them do it for way longer than they should. Like me, I just retired at 71, you know? So, so you know, uh, so I, I, I wouldn't have done it for so long if I didn't like it, right? But, but, um, and also, but there's a time in everybody's life. You got to like smell the roses, you know? So for me, it's a uh, time to like, you know, you know, enjoy whatever time I have left on this earth, you know? And, uh, and uh, but I do, I, I do spend time, uh, you know, helping others, you know? And helping young guys learn more, um, and uh, that's something that I enjoy to do. And I hope that I hope make a positive impact on on anybody that I come in touch with when it comes to you know learning dentistry because we do love what we do. And the p and you know, the average person out there should know that when they go see a dentist, they do it because they do like it. They're not they don't go to work every day and say, "Oh my God, I hate going to work." You know, you know that that we don't do that. You know, you know we're like everybody else. We get tired and we get worn out. But we do it because we do like it. And I, I can like testament to uh, the impact you've had on others, because whether it's the impact you've had on me through the years, um, whether it's from the business aspect, from the implant aspect, um, from just the mentorship and guidance, you know, through our friendship over the years and how I've seen you've been that way with so many people. Um, you're literally probably one of the most generous people, you know, in terms of your time you're sharing, you're, I mean, even though you're retired, I know we know people, you're still going out to help yeah. as they're kind of getting started. Um, and that's just, you know, a testament to the type of person that you are. And mm -hmm. it is interesting to see over the years, not only the evolution of dentistry, but how it affects real people, right? You can love what you do, but if you really got into this because you wanted to help people, the business sides can really bog you down. The insurance game can really have a strong negative effect on your spirit when really all you've signed up. And I know it sounds cheesy, but when you ask young kids why they want to be a doctor or a dentist, it's they want to help people. Yeah, that's true. And at the heart of it, that's that's what we want. But then we end up having to learn how to operate within, you know, kind of a very, you know, dog eat dog, you know, letter of the law, contractual transaction um, yep. in our industry. But I, I do applaud you. You know, I love you, brother. We've known each other for so long. I love you too, brother, yeah. I thank you for sharing. Um, and yeah, I'll let Walt close it out. Um, if he has anything to say or ask, I, I think this is a good time. No, no. I, I mean, I, I was just going to sit back with let the bromance kind of, you know, <laughs> melt this out and uh, so we can we can leave wonderfully, you know. And, uh, you know, I will say, I, you know, I'm going to say that uh, Steve has said so many nice things about uh Leroy, that I, I'm not sure if I believe him anymore, you know, because I, mean? I know Leroy. <laughs> he, he said so many nice things, and I was like, man. Are we, we talking about the same guy? Are we talking about the same yeah. person? But no, no, it, it's it's nice, man. Like the friendship and, and, and just the collaboration. And I think that's what dentistry should be. 
I really believe that. I truly believe that that's what dentistry should be. We shouldn't be sitting there going after each other because as we all said, and and I think Steve said it uh, so eloquently, like if you had to pick the three of what was messing up dentistry, I think we can all agree <laughs> on one yes. corporate, you know, one entity, you know, and I'm not going to repeat the entity insurance, but yep. <laughs> we know that in the end, it's never going to, we're never going to say, oh, is that guy down the street who's also a dentist? We're never going to point fingers at, at each other and we should stop doing that. I really yeah. do think that it's a collaborative thing. We're all in this together. And we need to st- we need to remember that whenever we're working or or, or you know doing our day to day, you know. So I I, I think it's wonderful, uh, Steve. I'm gonna leave you with the last word. What would you like to say to anybody in dentistry uh, about just the field of dentistry and what you've learned uh, throughout the years? Uh, I would just like to say that it's uh, even though it's very expensive to get through dental school, it's still I think in the long run. I still think you'll get your loans paid off. I think you'll get to a point where you'll you'll start saving some money. And I think in the end, in the end of your work life, like me, you'll be okay. You know, I think you'll be okay. And I think you could be, if you're good, you'll be proud of what you've done for 30 or 40 years, whatever it is, you know. And uh, and I really appreciate you doctors for allowing me to say these things. Okay. And I hope to see both of you soon. Absolutely, man. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you're welcome very much. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tooth Be Told. The opinions on this episode are just that, our opinions. Please consult your dental professional before taking any action with your dental health. If you have any questions about anything you heard on this episode, please contact us at Real Dentist with an S. That's R-E-A-L dentist with an s at gmail.com we would be very happy to return any message that we receive because we love the communication that we have with our listeners